0: You're listening to the best of A Place of Peace.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to A Place of Peace. Peggy Stanton here, your host on A Place of Peace, where we try to present conversations that bring uh, insights and inspiration that will hopefully help to ignite in your heart that peace the world cannot give. And today we're so pleased to welcome prolific author George Weigel to the program. He has just produced a book that entertains as well as enlightens the reader on a whole host of characters who have had notable impact on the world. George Weigel is Distinguished Senior Fellow of Washington's Ethics and Public Policy Center. He holds the William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies He is New York Times best-selling author of 28 books, two of which are the biographies of uh, John Paul II, uh, Witness to Hope, and The End, and The Beginning. As I said to uh, George during the break, I said I really had the best time reading this book. It's a collection of 68 characters, from Einstein to Flannery O'Connor, from John Paul to the Mamas and the Papas. The book Not Forgotten, but I selfishly kind of wanted to focus on a few that also crossed my path. George, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you.
0: Thank you, Peggy. It's good to be here, and I'm, I'm delighted to discuss uh, the book, Not uh, Forgotten. It was great fun putting this together. It's the funkiest subtitle I've ever written for a book, yeah. Not Forgotten. <laughs> elegies for and reminiscences of a diverse cast of characters, most of them admirable. Yeah. So, delighted you enjoyed the book, and I hope many of your listeners will, too. Uh,
1: you say most of them were admirable, so why not? Why put in the not-so-admirable?
0: Well, because all of these consequential lives teach us something about um, noble living, righteous living, good living. Uh, Some of them teach it along the old via negativa, uh, along the path not to be taken. Uh, Pete Seeger was a brilliant musician and an unapologetic communist for over three decades. That's one lesson to be learned. Uh, You mentioned Mamas and the Papas. Poor Cass Elliot uh, died of uh, hard living and never could form a a serious uh, relationship with the papa she loved, Denny Doherty, who also didn't respond to her affection. That's a, a lesson about the self-absorption of the '60s and how that precludes uh, true love.
1: Didn't he, at the end of his life, though? You say in the book. Yeah,
0: he admitted. Uh, the, yeah. He said about,
1: that that was his big, greatest big mistake.
0: mistake. Yep. Yep. So there are a number of uh, characters in here who um, uh, show us how not to do things.
1: You know, you talk about the self-absorption of the 60s. It seems to me, when I read that, I thought to myself, I think uh, in the 2021s we're going through that same kind of self-absorption, maybe even more.
0: Well, uh, if there is one bright thread connecting the admirable lives among these 68 miniature profiles in, in Not Forgotten. It's that a good life, a satisfying life, is a vocational life. It's not mm-hmm. a life lived worshipping the great God of me, myself, and I. It's mm-hmm. a life of purpose, life of self-gift, often a life of suffering. There are any number of people uh, in in my profiles mm-hmm. here who... We suffered greatly, a number of martyrs, but the bright thread connecting all of this is the notion of of vocational living. Each of us has a unique vocation, because each of us is a unique idea in the mind of God, and the journey of a lifetime is to try to figure out at at any given moment what it is that God is asking of us at, at this given moment, and to conform our lives to
1: that well, when I likened it to uh what we're living right now, it seems to me that we're that people are casting about uh particularly young people not knowing what their purpose in life is.
0: I think there is a lot of confusion around us a kind of hyper individualism has has taken over our culture and our society. You know, to the point where now obviously disturbed and hurting 12-year-old boys are saying, I'm a girl, mm-hmm. and uh, society is telling them that's fine, and if mm-hmm. this uh, wretched so-called Equality Act passes in the Congress and is signed by President Biden, that, that is going to be a protected claim under U.S. civil rights law, mm-hmm. which that's many of the characters in this book would find incomprehensible, including, I might say, Democrats like Sergeant Shriver, mm. Pat mm. Moynihan, Scoop Jackson, as well as some of the Republicans I profile, uh, like mm. Henry Hyde. Lindy Boggs would be another Democrat who could not possibly
1: vote. She would never Moynihan. have understood. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, would, I would have she... understood it's a very bad idea. And that mm-hmm. these what confused people need is help and compassion not an affirmation of mental distress.
1: Well, let's talk about Lindy Boggs, who was a very delightful Democrat. Tell the story about when she was going to turn down the ambassadorship to the Vatican and Cokie Roberts, her daughter, (laughs) apprised her of why she should not do that.
0: Lindy had been a member of Congress for um, many, many years. She had succeeded her husband, Hale Boggs, when he was Killed in a plane crash in, I believe, the late 60s. She had been a great pro-lifer in Congress, uh, but, you know, she was 80, 81 years old, and enough of public life was enough. So uh, she was looking forward to retiring to New Orleans and kicking back a bit. And then the Clinton administration, for reasons I describe in, in the book, Not Forgotten, decided to appoint her the ambassador to the Vatican in 1997. And she didn't think this was a good idea at all, and told her daughter, Cokie Roberts, then of National Public Radio, that she was going to turn it down. And Cokie famously said to her, come on, Mom, it's the two things you like doing most in the world, going to mass and going to parties. Now, there's a lot more to being the U.S. ambassador to the Holy right. See than going to mass and going to parties, but it was a great line. I don't know whether it actually turned the trick in terms of getting Lindy to reconsider, but she did a marvelous job as ambassador for three and a half years, and we as a country were very much benefited by her service in that post.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, she was great in the post. And just to show what a different time the country was in, in that era. Lindy, a Democrat, as you say, and my husband was a Republican, and they served together. And when Bill, my husband, decided to leave Congress, Lindy said, I want to give him a party. And I said, oh, well, Lindy, you don't have to do that. She said, oh, darling, she said, it's just a great excuse to give a party. <laughs> so that...
0: Yeah, that was, uh, she was a very gracious uh, lady, and uh, interestingly enough, and I used to tease her about this, her Claiborne ancestors, I think uh, Lindy's maiden name was Claiborne, uh, Mm. in the 1600s were the Puritans who were trying to steal the Catholic colony of Maryland away from the
1: Catholics. Oh. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) she was so Catholic I I remember uh, she went to was one of the first uh, to go to Medjugorje and I went too. and both of us were very enthused about it and I gave a talk on Capitol Hill and I said Lindy will you come and be there and so I called her up to the podium and she got up she said well people always asking me why I went to Medjugorje and she said well I went cuz the blessed mother asked me to come and I thought it'd be rude to turn her down. <laughs> uh, there you go. So let's well, talk let's talk about Henry Hyde who you you say was one of uh, tell the story of how how you first came in contact with Henry.
0: Well, I was having lunch with another congressman in the uh, in the house dining room in the days when you could actually get into the Capitol. um, which is no longer the case. uh, And Henry came up. This uh, was a member from Seattle whom I had done some work with when I was living out there, and he had had a um, cancer problem and uh, a lot of chemotherapy, and this large fellow came up and (laughs) asked asked my friend how he was feeling. and, And my friend said, he was doing fine, introduced me. Henry asked me what I was doing in town. I said I'm at the Woodrow Wilson Center uh, writing a book on Catholics' War and Peace. Mm-hmm. So Henry went off to have lunch. Uh, about a half an hour later, he comes back to our table and asks me, have I ever written anything on church and state? Mm-hmm. This was in 1984, and we had had the, mm-hmm. the flap over Geraldine Ferraro and the Democratic mm-hmm. ticket and uh, pro-life issues and... Mm-hmm. Mario Cuomo at Notre Dame mm-hmm. and whatnot. And, I'm personally uh,
1: opposed to abortion, Cuomo. But <laughs>
0: Yeah, right. And I said, well, yes, I had. And and Henry said, well, would you send me some things? I said, sure. So I packaged up some stuff and, and sent it to him. And it, it turned out that he had been invited by the Notre Dame Law School to uh, go out there and give what amounted to a response to Governor Cuomo's I'm personally opposed, but speech. So I ended up drafting uh, the bulk of that uh, speech, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of really 20 years of work with uh, with Henry, wow. uh, who became wow. a close friend, and um, uh, we did a lot of a lot of things together, uh, uh, including his work on the uh, Clinton impeachment in 1998 and 1999. Mm-hmm. Well, while I was in the middle of writing the first volume of my John Paul II biography,
1: that was a rather that's an interesting juxtaposition when, yeah. well,
0: I would work from you know nine to five on John Paul the Second, five to seven on the impeachment, and oh, then seven my. to nine on uh uh John Paul the Second that went on for about five months that was uh <laughs> that was rather intense for uh, a while there.
1: I know. What a combination, a juxtaposition of characters. John Paul II and Bill Clinton.
0: Yeah, well, that was, uh, life is full of
1: ironies. (laughs) You used a term for Henry. You said he was a singularity. I presume you meant that he's one of a kind.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, He was a remarkable combination of... uh, Characteristics. Uh, first of all, he was just a very big man. Uh, yes,
1: he certainly was. Don't
0: remember him as being on the portly side. Probably don't remember that he was a terrific basketball player in college at Georgetown. Yeah, right. played in the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was. He was just. Big in many ways. He had a rollicking sense of humor. Mm-hmm. He read voraciously. Um, he was a great student of history. Uh, he was the undisputed leader of the pro-life forces in Congress for decades. Uh, and he, he nobody really hated Henry. You couldn't. I mean, a lot of people disagreed mm-hmm. with him. Some of them disdained him. But mm-hmm. nobody really hated him. And that's not because he was a cream puff. I mean, he was one of the yeah. most terrific, spontaneous debaters mm-hmm. uh, in modern times in the House of Representatives. I mean, he's the kind of guy who reminds you of what it was like when Clay and Calhoun and Webster were going out mm-hmm. in the Senate mm-hmm. in the 19th right. century. Uh, he was a dedicated public servant, he didn't go into public life to gain distinction. And he didn't think of politics as a performance art. He thought of it as a way to get things done for the common good. So in that sense, he's a, he's a real sign of contradiction to a lot of our politics today.
1: How did his firm stand on pro-life? Where did that originate? Do you know?
0: Henry was a very intelligent man, and he understood that, uh, first of all, as a matter of science, the product of human conception is a human being. Mm -hmm. And uh, he understood, uh, as someone who had been trained at Georgetown when that was a seriously Catholic university, that uh, one of the first principles of justice is that innocent human life deserves the protection of the law in a just state you put those two together, you've got, you know, the two big claims of the pro-life movement. And I think this this conviction grew in him over time, and he was never out-argued on this, that's for sure. But mm-hmm. at a certain point, um, these ceased to be rational arguments. And mm-hmm. uh, Henry, I think, understood perfectly well that there were There were two sides to the pro-life movement, as as there are today. There's uh, Mm -hmm. the argument side, which aims at judicial and legislative reform of our laws. And then there's the service side. Uh, Mm -hmm. Women in crisis pregnancies deserve support. And that's Mm -hmm. why the pro-life movement has built thousands of crisis pregnancy centers around the country, uh, Mm -hmm. to make clear that nobody has to have an abortion. Nobody has to have an abortion in the United States. And uh, Henry understood both sides, uh, both of those parts of the pro-life movement, and was all the more uh, effective a spokesman for that cause because of
1: it. And so willing to speak vociferously about it. uh, You quote in there, he gave a talk to new members of Congress, and I thought this was... So impressive. If you don't know what you're prepared to lose your seat for, you're going to do a lot of damage up here. You're going to have to know what you're willing to lose everything for if you're going to be the kind of member of Congress this country needs. And then you write, it seems too much to ask we will ever see his like again. Do you really feel that way?
0: Well, I hope that's wrong, but until we get out of politics as performance art and uh, the world of Twitter, it's going to be very difficult for people of the quality of Henry Hyde and the character of Henry Hyde to make an impact in our public life. Henry made an impact because he made arguments, not because he sent out Mm -hmm. tweets. And, uh, Although he could
1: be great at a headline comment, though yes, he say?
0: could. But there's a difference between you yeah. know headlines and snark and tweets. And, yeah, uh, right. And he knew that uh, difference and uh, lived it. So I hope I hope that's not too uh, depressing a prediction. But at the moment, <laughs> it is very very difficult to uh, imagine uh, a Henry Hyde-like figure. Making it in American public life today, and that that's that's a comment on American public life, not on Henry Hodd.
1: No, it's very sad to think that, but it it really was such a different time, George. I mean, I, I there were a, there were a lot of men I that I remember. I used to say there there are two kinds of men who seem to and women who come to Congress, and those who want to stuff your press box with uh, their releases and are thinking more about getting to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue from Capitol Hill, and then the other, what I call the workhorse, you know, and Henry was one of those, as well as a marvelous speaker, and there's so many who come with greater ambitions, and that's what's on their mind, and probably why they're so active on twitter but let's talk about john paul ii now an awful lot of ink has been spilled about him but i think few with your repertorial skills who had the opportunity to be so up close and personal with him and now he is the only man or person in the book who got two chapters
0: those were the memorial essays i published in the wall street journal Mm-hmm. and in Newsweek at the time of his death. And I tried in those to to help uh, my readers come to know the Pope from the inside. Now, that's a leitmotif throughout all of these 68 mm-hmm. vignettes in, in Not Forgotten. Uh, you can only understand uh, a life from inside out, not right, just right. from outside in. But mm-hmm. I think that's particularly true of John Paul II, who was a... Marvelously complicated personality, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time, a man of one uh, profound conviction uh, that mm-hmm. is, that uh, Jesus Christ is the answer to the question that is every human life. Mm-hmm. And he dedicated his life to offering friendship. With the Lord Jesus to everyone he met, and that—that that is why he was such a compelling public figure.
1: Uh, you said he had another great theme: man's capacity, with God's grace, to achieve heroic virtue. Elaborate on that a bit.
0: I think John Paul II was concerned that there had been a great dumbing down of of our expectations of ourselves. That you know mm-hmm. the. The Freudians had taught us that we were all uh, simply bundles of desires. The Marxists had taught us that history is just the exhaust fumes of economic processes. Mm-hmm. Humanity had done terrible things to itself in two world wars. Uh, there was the shadow, the shadow, the horror of the Holocaust, of the Ukrainian terror famine. All of this had depressed the human spirit mm-hmm. and it made us aim low, John Pope mm-hmm. II feared. Uh, And he wanted us to aim high, because he believed that cooperating with grace made noble living possible, and could bend the course of history in a more humane direction. And he proved that. Um, His epic first papal pilgrimage to Poland in, in June 1979 was an exercise in arousing consciences, which then changed history because there is a direct line from the papal visit to Poland in June 1979 Mm. to the collapse of European communism in the fall of 1999. So it's good to remember that. I mean, we're in tough times today, but things did not look real good when uh, John Paul II was elected in October 1978, Mm. and they looked a lot better 26 years later when he died. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. You know, you quote him as saying, "Freedom uncoupled from truth will lead to chaos." That's where we are now, don't you think? I mean, there there seems to no core truth. It's just my truth versus your truth.
0: Yeah, that's a real problem. Uh, As so is the problem that freedom is simply to borrow from Frank Sinatra, "I did it my way." Mm -hmm. That's an infantile notion of freedom. I have a beautiful 20-month-old grandson. That's his idea of freedom.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, you're right. He, you
0: know, what he wants yeah. to do, he wants to do now, and he doesn't yeah. want any interference with it. <laughs>
1: um,
0: that's, you know, uh, that is a childish notion of freedom. It's, uh, it you know, it's there's a difference between banging on a piano and making music. <laughs>
1: uh, well said. And
0: the, and the difference is discipline. You have to learn how to uh, discipline your, your hands and your eyes and your fingers and make all that work together in order to play the piano well. And yet that discipline, which seems very burdensome at the time, I remember when I was... Studying the piano in elementary mm. school, I think the first book I ever wanted to burn was a book called <laughs> Scales, Chords, yes. and Arpeggios. Uh, it was this <laughs> dreadful book of exercises, yeah. and and yet you know once you mastered that, then you could play mm. the music you wanted, and even perhaps make mm. some of your own. So the notion that there can be freedom untethered to truth and goodness is just uh, infantile. And uh, when the Declaration of Independence talks about liberty, it is not talking about infantile liberty.
1: Mm -hmm. It's
0: talking about the capacity to be self-governing. And a people can only be self-governing as a people if each of us is is self-governed from within.
1: And you say that that, um, John Paul, though, Relentlessly preach tolerance and profound respect for the humanity of the other. Uh, even this is, um, I don't think understood by most people, and this is why he could talk with such a, a broad range of personalities, even those he vehemently disagreed with.
0: Well, he had a secure conviction that all truths from whatever source they come, eventually inclined towards the one truth, who is God. Hmm. Because God is truth, whatever truth there is in the world, whether it's mathematical truth, or scientific truth, or literary truth, or philosophical truth, or theological truth, eventually leads you to capital T truth, who is God. And if you really believe that, then you can encounter others even in their confusions, and um, have a real conversation and perhaps make some progress in a mutual grasp of the truth.
1: You know, it was amazing in that particular line. He was willing and anxious to speak with the Soviets, even though he pretty much considered and knew that they were probably behind the assassination attempt on him.
0: Well, he was willing to talk to Mr. Gorbachev mm-hmm. uh, because he correctly perceived that he was a different kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he knew quite well who was behind the assassination attempt. I mean, not in the sense that you know that one plus one equals two in the base right. ten system, but uh, anybody who understood mm-hmm. the dynamics of the moment, anybody who's studied the matter carefully, as, as I certainly have, mm-hmm. uh, knows that the trail yeah. eventually leads back to uh, probably Yuri Andropov and the KGB mm-hmm. in, in Moscow. But he also understood that uh, Gorbachev wanted something different and was prepared to deal with him on that uh, basis.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, at this uh half hour has gone way too fast. There're just so many interesting people in this book of 68 characters and uh, including Charles Krothammer and Michael Novak, whom I came to know, Sarge Schreiber. Please do get this book. You'll just love it. It's uh, by George Weigel, Not Forgotten. And George Weigel, thank you so much for being with us today on a place of peace. Okay.
0: Thank you, Peggy, and and one more, just one more time. The book's title is not forgotten.
1: All right. Okay. Well, I you hope you'll much. come back, and maybe we'll talk about some more. Thank I'd you. I'd love
0: to. Thank you. Uh, bye
1: bye. Bye. Again, I want to tell you, you'll you will love the book. It's it's very very interesting. It really captures uh, the twentieth and the early twenty first century of characters. So it's George Weigel with uh, the book Not Forgotten. And uh, this is Peggy Stanton signing off for A Place of Peace. Please join us next week.